So it's lesson number, if you're counting, I'm helping you, I'm keeping track, lesson number 32 in our chronological journey through the gospel. And we will not finish in 2022. We'll still be going through it in 2023. And if the Lord should tarry, I probably would say we're going to dip into 2024. I mean, you're trying to take all four gospels in one large snapshot and not reading every verse from every gospel writer, but uh, getting the, the whole of the gospel ministry. And so we just want to be faithful to this and continue to work our way through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have him in the upper Galilee doing ministry right now, that which we are looking at today. And normally have my notes here next to me. I didn't do that this morning. Been a little distracted, a little slow getting going this morning for me. But uh, we've normally been uh, focusing here in that year of what is known as um, the year of popularity, the Galilean ministry that the Lord has really drawn a very great gathering around him going about. And we have him currently in our study on the road again, visiting different places, different villages. He left Capernaum. He went to uh, Nain, the village of Nain, and did a miracle there of raising a young boy from the dead. And so he's making a circuit at this time. And he had, as we learned last week, cast out a demon out of a man who was both blind and mute And it was undeniable that a miracle had happened because suddenly this man who had been blind and mute, and so there is a causation with this that the demon caused the man to be blind and mute. It's not always a causation with someone who is blind or mute that they have demon possession. But here we have in the scripture, the causation was the demonic influence in this man's life that caused him to be both blind and mute. And now he is able to see, he's able to speak. And it was undeniable that a miracle had taken place. And the religious rulers, as we learned last week, then accused the Lord of casting out demons by Beelzebub, the Lord of the demons. And Jesus told them that your logic is nonsense. And he talked about that houses divided against themselves fall. Nations divided against themselves fall. That's a big warning for us here in the United States where we hear a lot about the division that we have in our nation. And, uh, you know, the left is telling the right and the right is telling the left. Ultimately, if we don't come to some kind of unity, then we are susceptible to fall. Jesus went on to talk about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which we looked at last week as well, and talked about committing that unpardonable sin in the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is really the rejection of the Spirit's witness concerning Jesus and the salvation available through him. So those who reject Jesus also at the same time are rejecting the witness of the Holy Spirit whom Jesus said in the Gospel of John, he will testify of me. And the Lord said, of this blasphemy, one will not be forgiven. 
Well, according to Matthew, after Jesus taught about the unpardonable sin, he taught about the condition of people's hearts of having either good or bad fruit. And that will begin our study today in Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 through 37. And then we're going to look at the sign, the title of our message is show us a sign this is because the religious rulers began to ask jesus for a sign show us a sign that you are the messiah they had saw a man who was demonically possessed both blind and um, mute unable to speak they had saw a young boy who was dead they were having the funeral uh, service and uh, they were headed to the graveyard it would be like after the funeral, today we have a funeral. A lot of times, you know, uh, they'll take the body, they'll go to the graveyard, and you'll have the graveside service. And it would be like Jesus stopping there on the corner of 173 and Deep Lake saying, Wait a minute, I'd like to see the body, please. And uh, just taking the brakes on it. And just think about it. They were headed out the city, they were going to the graveside, and Jesus stopped, touched the young lad caused him to rise from the dead. They had seen miracles, but they're still asking for signs. And so Jesus said that no sign would be given but the sign of Jonah. We'll look at that also from Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 38 through 42. And then we'll go over to Luke 11. And this is all following in the same timeline. But Luke introduces us. Uh, Right after this, Matthew talks about this as well. Jesus warning about the danger of being empty and swept clean. We'll talk about what that means when we get to Luke 11, verses 24 through 26. And then we'll close out with the true family of God, just kind of picking up from Mark's gospel, chapter 3, verses 31 through 35, about Jesus's mother and brothers And uh, all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover this in their Gospels, but we're going to grab it from Mark's Gospel just to give him a little time in our teaching as we go through this chronological journey through the Gospel. So we're going to begin by looking at good fruit versus bad fruit, reading from Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verses 33 through 35. And we find here, I need to turn one page to get to the right place. Picking up in chapter 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things for out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. Verse 35, a good man, uh, Out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. So every good tree will bear good fruit. A bad tree will bear bad fruit. He's saying that a tree is known by its fruits and the condition of the tree itself, whether you're going to have good or bad fruits, or even at times no fruits, If a tree is not willing to bear any fruit at all, then uh, there's a point in the Gospels where the vineyard owner asked to fertilize the tree to try to see if it could get it to bear fruit. But if it refused to bear fruit, eventually to cut it down and to throw it in the fire, plant a new tree there, plant something that's going to bear fruit there. 
and will be known. Jesus really not talking about trees here. He's just using an object lesson that we could easily understand and not wanting to necessarily talk about fruit trees, but the condition of individuals and the hearts of individuals. In Matthew 7:20, there's a portion of scripture that goes along with this where the Lord said, therefore they, by their fruits, you will know them. The psalmist speaks about this in Psalm 10, verses 2 through 4, saying, the, wick, the wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boast of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy. He renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. So those who are producing bad fruits, and the psalmist recounts the craftiness of the wicked, and he gives us a clear picture of the prideful arrogance of the wicked that is rooted in their lack of the knowledge of God. They are those who renounce the Lord. They do not seek God. God is in none of their thoughts. And God's judgment will come upon them because of the fruit that they are bearing is bad fruit. Now for me personally, it's hard to imagine God not being in my thoughts. I would say that, I would argue, that God's grace toward me was upon me even before I was conceived in my mother's womb because my mom came to faith in Jesus Christ before there was even a Johnny thought about. She was following after the Lord, going to church with my three sisters at the time. I'm the youngest in the family. And my dad wasn't even a believer. And I don't know when he began attending church with them. What I do know of their story was that when I was two months old, he received Christ as his savior. So I grew up with a family that worshiped Jesus Christ, attended church. My dad was a deacon. Mom and dad were both heavily involved in church. My dad became a pastor there in uh, Wadsworth, Illinois, and then in Zion, Illinois. Same church, but just moved locations. But I grew up around church my whole life, and I'm still attending church. I think of Christ all the time, every day. So it's hard to me to imagine people where God is not in their thoughts, but it really explains a lot of what we see in our world today. You look at around our world today and you see the bad fruits. You see the depravity that's going on in our world. And it is because God is in none of their thoughts or perhaps for some part of the church or those who are not even of the church have so twisted the meaning of Scripture that though they may think of God from time to time, they have such a twisted view of God that they don't have a correct view of God. Even in our nation today, we have this continuation of God being removed from our three branches of government, the executive branch, the legislative branch, the judicial branch, and the absence of God in our society is filtering down to where it's causing the hearts of the people to produce bad fruits. And the result 
is a country that now reels in lawlessness. I have to tell you that we all might wonder what in our own state, who now in January says that they are going to enact the Safety Act, where people who are caught doing crimes will be released without bail, that we wonder the demise that will happen in our own state unless things get corrected in this state. And we don't have to wonder too hard because all we have to do is look at cities who have already done this and we see that lawlessness has now abounded in these cities. So Isaiah 5.20 reminds us, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light, light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. These things perfectly describe what's going on in our nation today. You will be known by your fruit, either bad fruit or good fruit. The good fruit comes from those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So you'll either be justified or condemned in verses 36 and 37. But I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give an account on the day of judgment, for by their words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So it gives us a picture that God will judge every idle word, every Word, whether at the Bema Seat judgment of Christ, which is reserved for believers, or at the great white throne judgment of God, which is reserved for unbelievers, we will be judged for the words that we have spoken. Every idle word. It's good to be a master of your heart and a master of the words that come out of your mouth. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. You'll be known by your fruits, and the Lord is going to test and search the heart according to the fruit of our doing. And the Bible only gives two choices, everlasting life through faith in Jesus Christ or everlasting condemnation for those who reject Jesus Christ as a way to life. There's no soul sleep. There's no purgatory. Hebrews 4.13 reminds us that no creature is hidden from his sight, that all are naked and open before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now we can be fruit inspectors today. We can judge people by the fruit of their doing, whether it's good or bad fruit. But honestly, only God can test the hearts. And we find the condition of the heart of mankind today is really not much changed since the days of David, who said in Psalm 12, 3 through 5, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things, who have said, With our tongue we will prevail, with our lips are our own. Who is the Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor for the sign of the needy. Now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set them in safety for which he yearns. That God will judge. And the wicked, those with flattering lips, those who speak proud things, eventually the Lord will judge them. God said, I will set him in safety for that which he yearns. Speaking about the poor, speaking about the needy. The world that believes that they are accountable to no one will one day find out that they will be accounted 
accountable to God who is in heaven. Is your heart producing good fruit or is it producing bad fruit? What is the fruit of your life today? So he goes on to speak about the sign of Jonah. The scribes, I think, maybe being convicted here, and this is always the case when someone steps on your toes in conviction, you try to deflect. They do it in politics all the time. And they try to push blame back towards someone else. And so we find in the second point, the sign of Jonah, the Pharisees and the scribes crying out, we want a sign, verses 38 through 40, still in Matthew's gospel, chapter 12. But also this is found in Luke's gospel, chapter 11. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answering Jesus, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seek after a sign. No sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jonah was a wayward prophet who refused to cry out against the great city of Nineveh. He did this because Nineveh was a known enemy of Israel. And so he decided... Let's just say it just popped in my mind that the Lord put it on my heart very strongly. John, I want you to go to Iran and to cry out against that great nation. And I would think, first of all, I'd have to get past Lily to make such a trip. But I would think that would be the least likely place on the earth that I would want to go and cry out in the name of Jesus because I'm pretty sure that it would mean certain death for me to do that. So let's just bring it into a modern situation. If the Lord calls you to a place that you know is most likely going to kill you, hate you, um, let's make it right in our own country that there's a riot in Minnesota. BLM is strong there. And the Lord says, John, I want you to go as pale skinned as you are right in the heart of a BLM riot, Antifa riot, and cry out the truth of the gospel for me. Thinking, Lord, this is not wisdom that you are trying to get me to do here. So understand Jonah. He was a wayward prophet who refused to cry out against the great city of Nineveh because Nineveh was a very wicked people and they were the enemy of Israel. So Jonah tried to flee as far as he could away from, I believe, going the opposite direction of Nineveh, hopped on a ship, started sailing a different way away from that city, a great tempest was sent by God that caused the captain and the sailors to cry out to their gods and to even go and awake the sleeping prophet of God and to encourage this prophet to cry out to his God. They didn't believe in the God of Israel, but they were ready for praying to any God, whatever God would work. So Jonah, you got to pray to your God after the prayers didn't work, they cast lots to figure out what was the cause of this great tempest, obviously something that they had not seen before. The lot fell on Jonah, and they told Jonah to fess up what's going on. You're the cause of this, and he confessed that God had called him to go to Nineveh, and he refused to go. But instead of a true confession to God, 
Jonah said to the sailors, just throw me overboard. Jonah would have rather drowned in the sea than to go to Nineveh. This is a stubborn man at this point. And the sailors did not want to be guilty of throwing a prophet of God who caused this great storm to throw the prophet into the sea. So they first tried to uh, lighten the load of the ship by all the cargo that they could. But when the sea continued to prevail against them, they eventually conceded through Jonah overboard and just picture Jonah heading overboard thinking, great, I don't have to go to Nineveh. But God caused a great fish, not a whale. We don't know what kind of fish it was, but he caused a great fish. Maybe even as Jonah was heading overboard thinking, great, I don't have to go to... Three days and three nights. He survived. He finally repented. Here, a stubborn prophet. So if you're swallowed by a fish, you're being what some have described being eaten up by the acids of the stomach fluid in this fish, but you're still living through it somehow. Why in the world would it take you three days to even confess to the Lord saying, okay, I'll go. He's still thinking at the beginning, and I'm thinking the Lord was showing him that I can keep you here as long as I want. So you're either going to do my will or you're going to keep suffering until you do my will. After three days and three nights, he confessed to the Lord God. Now, I used to think, and this is just bad theology that probably came out of Sunday school, Nineveh was inland. I used to think in my head as a child, and it grew into my um, being an adult and just not reading scripture of what it said and knowing the, top, the map of the Middle East, that there's no great sea by Nineveh. But I used to think that God spin him up at Nineveh. He didn't. He just, I'm thinking, right where he took off from. If you want to run, I'll bring you right back to that place of dust where you left, and I'll just bring you back. Now you can do my will. Nineveh was 500 miles inland from Israel. But once he got there, he cried out to the people of Nineveh. And the Word of God tells us that the people's acts of repentance from the king to the common people showed the humility of their hearts. 1 Corinthians 7.10 reminds us that godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And so this account... Jesus said, no sign will be given, but Jonah the prophet. And then he explains it as Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of that great fish. So will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus gave them a sign, but a sign that would not come for maybe a year and a half later. You won't see this sign until you kill me on the cross, put me in the grave until I resurrect from the, gra from the grave. And I'm three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he gave them a sign, but they would have to wait until the fulfillment of that sign. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24, the Jews request a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, 
both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. And then he goes on to talk about the Ninevites rising up in judgment. I actually changed my notes here. And on point two, num, uh, letter B, the Queen of Sheba, where I had John three nineteen through 21. That's a great verse, but we're not going to go there. I'll give you a different verse because... As I read this passage over this morning, the Lord put a new thought in my head that I had quite honestly never had in my life. But just from reading scripture, and that's why I love to study the word of God over and over again. The Lord keeps revealing. The Lord keeps teaching. The men of Nineveh, he says in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Now, originally I was concentrating on, indeed the greater of Jonah is here. That's talking about Jesus and the preaching of Christ himself, the Messiah. But then the Lord had me thinking about the men of Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba rising up in judgment against this generation. We'll look at that in a moment. But when Jonah looked at Nineveh, he saw a cruel and wicked enemy of Israel. And God looked at Nineveh. This is what he saw according to Jonah 4:11, 120,000 persons who could not discern their right hand from their left and much livestock. He was concerned about the innocent people and the animals. Sometimes we exclude the animals. But God was even concerned about the livestock that they had. And if God was willing to spare Sodom, if only 10 righteous people could be found there, how much more then would he, who is according to Jonah 2, Jonah 4, 2, and this is Jonah's reason, his excuse of why he didn't go at first to Nineveh, because he knew the nature of God. Jonah was saying to the Lord, I know that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abundant loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. For Jonah, he was saying, I knew you would do this, Lord. And maybe the Lord was saying, yeah, I knew it too, but I needed you to preach to the people first that they might have the opportunity to repent. And Nineveh was spared at the preaching of Jonah. And the Lord said, this generation, the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation. So the Bible tells us in 2 Peter 3, 9, that the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We cry out and we think, Lord, how long? How long are you going to allow the things go on in this world? But often we don't think about the innocence of the children, the innocence of the nation. Eventually, it will reach a point of no return. But as long as we live on this earth, we are not at that point yet. And God's grace is still sufficient and able to save those who turn to him in life-saving faith. So the book of Jonah reveals an exceedingly great God who is willing to go to an exceedingly great city. And I say exceedingly because that's how Jonah describes the city of Nineveh, that exceedingly great city. 
So we see an exceedingly great God who is willing to go to exceedingly great lengths to save an exceedingly wicked people to teach his exceedingly destructive or disgruntled prophet. Yet Jesus said a greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of Sheba, he goes on in verse 42, will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. So we go to 1 Kings chapter 10, 2 Chronicles chapter 9 to learn about the Queen of Sheba. You can go outside of the Bible to learn a little bit about uh, the thoughts and the traditions around the Queen of Sheba. Some would say that when Solomon gave her whatever she asked, that she actually... uh, had a child by Solomon, and they claim that they have a line of Solomon there in the area of Sudan. That's what they claim, the Ethiopia area, but that's outside of the Bible, so we won't quite go there. We'll stick with Scripture, but it's something to contemplate, to think about. The Queen of Sheba, when she came, she traveled around 1,400 miles from Ethiopia to Jerusalem with a very great company of attendants, who brought Solomon gifts of gold, of spice, of precious stones. And the Bible records that she brought such spices in great quantity that the Bible records that never again in Jerusalem did they have such abundance of spices that came from the Queen of Sheba who gave them to Solomon. As the queen tested Solomon with hard questions, spoke to him about all that was in her heart, She discovered that there was nothing that was so difficult that he could not explain. She was not only amazed by his wisdom, but as she looked around his kingdom, she was astonished by the house that he had built, by the food on his table, by the uh, setting of his servants, by the service of his waiters, by the apparel of his people, his cupbearer of his entryway that went up to the house of the Lord that he could worship. And understanding Solomon's wisdom had affected every part of his empire. The Bible tells us that there was no more spirit in her. We might say she was just blown away. Overwhelmed in seeing all the wisdom and the glory that God had given to Solomon. And Jesus said, yet there is greater than a Solomon here today. And the Queen of Sheba and the people of Nineveh recognized God's work and God's word through the lives of Solomon and Jonah. But the people of Jesus' day were blind to the reality that the Messiah was there, the promised Son of God, the Son of David, was right in their midst and they were rejecting him. So this morning, as I read these words, the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. It had me picturing the great white throne judgment of God where the unbelieving Jews of that generation when Christ Jesus walked this earth stand before the Lord. It had me picturing. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 17.6 that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every person will be either condemned or set free by the mouth of two or three witnesses. And the Lord said he gave them two witnesses that would rise up in condemnation against them, the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south. And it had me picturing the great white throne judgment, that generation 
of those who refused to believe in that century that Jesus was there on the earth and Nineveh rising up and the queen of the south rising up in judgment against them and condemning them because a greater than Jonah, because a greater than Solomon, Jesus Christ was in their midst and they rejected him as God's only begotten son. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, here's a different verse. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, verse 11, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things happened to them as examples. They were written down for admonition, admonition upon the ends of the ages have come. These things have been written down for an example that we would be without excuse. And I can just picture God saying, you should have saw the example of Jonah and the men of Nineveh. You should have saw the example of Solomon and the queen of Sheba. And you did not recognize. But my question to you today, have you recognized the greatness of Jesus the Messiah? So he goes on. And if we stay in Matthew, we could continue this passage. But we're going to go over and pick it up from Luke's gospel just to give us another gospel writer. Luke 11, verse, verses 24 through 26. And so these next two passages, not too long. Empty and swept clean is what I titled this. We begin with demonic possession. In this passage, Jesus teaches about the danger of demonic possession. But I also see that there's a greater lesson in here of the importance of filling our lives with Christ. So let's look at the danger of being empty and swept clean first, this demonic possession, 24 and 25 of Luke 11. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest, finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. So by combining other passages of the Bible, I have come personally to the understanding that demons either need or like having people to possess. They like having a house. He went out seeking maybe a better place. And I get this, especially from Jesus casting out the demons who called themselves legion, a demonically possessed man, in Matthew 8:31, when Jesus cast them out before they went out, the demons begged Jesus, if you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. They wanted a host body, even if it was a bunch of pigs. Any house will do. And of course, we know that the swines ran down this steep place. And it's interesting, if you get to visit, a chance to visit Israel, you're on the Sea of Galilee, there's only really one steep place in all of the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. So they're pretty much convinced they know the location of this account in Matthew 8:31 because of the steep decline into the Sea of the Galilee where the demons went into the swine. They ran down and drowned, drowned, say that better, John, drowned there in the sea. But in this passage, a demon went out of a man, perhaps seeking a better host, but he found none. So while the man was gone, while the demon was gone, the spirit was gone, the man had opportunity 
to fill his life with God. Instead, the demon came back to find the man's house swept and put in order. In other words, his spirit was ready to allow either Christ or self to occupy, either Christ or pride, either Christ or demons. Without Jesus, no matter what else he chose, the last state of the man became worse than the first. The Word of God warns us in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 to be sober, to be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And the Bible tells us to resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. We are too. Watch out for the bad, for demonic activity. And I don't believe that believers in Jesus Christ can be possessed by demons today, but I do believe that demonic forces can oppress, can trouble those who trust in Christ. So we're to be on guard. I've known many people who have cleaned up their act. I've known those who have once drank heavily, no longer do they drink. Those who have used drugs, they don't use drugs anymore. Those who have once lived hard lives, they've mellowed with age. And yet if they clean up their act apart from Christ, they continue to have a life that's really empty and void, and they're ready for that next big thing to step in and occupy their hearts. We're to have a life that's living a filled life with Christ and we don't get this in verse 26, but this is what I'm getting out of this, the importance of filling our lives with Christ. Verse 26, talking about the demon, he goes, he takes seven other spirits more wicked than himself. They enter and dwell there, and the last state of the man is worse than the first. Finding no place to dwell, this demon that went out returns with seven others, and truly the man's state was worse than at the first, seven others where the Bible says these seven other demons were even worse than the original host or demonic being that was in this man. So during the kingdom age, Israel fell. And here how some of the uh, theologians have connected this, why Jesus was telling this account, a parable, some call it a parable, we're not sure. He's telling this of a man who was demonically possessed, had opportunity to fill his life with God, but chose not to, and then got in a worse condition. So some theologians have connected this to the kingdom age of Israel that fell into such a state of apostasy, worshiping other gods in the land of Israel, that eventually the Lord cast them out to Babylon for 70 years. After their captivity... Well, first of all, during the captivity, whether the Assyrian captivity for the 10 tribes in the north or the Babylonian captivity for Judah and the two tribes in the south, they've been so exposed to the gods of Assyria and Babylon that never again in the Bible to, do we read of the Israelis worshiping false gods. Never again did they worship and build up um, places of worship to Baal or Asherah. Um, we never read of it again. So 
they had been so overly exposed to demonic influence that they said, we want nothing of these other gods. We worship God alone. But still, Israel didn't fill their lives with the one true God. They recognized God. They had acts of worship, of course. They built the second temple. Herod the Great remodeled the second temple. They had a glorious place to worship. But by not recognizing that a greater than Jonah, by not recognizing that a greater than Solomon, the rejection of Jesus Christ meant that they had filled their life with something else. Maybe it was pride. Maybe it was works. But ultimately, their worst condition would be, uh, their condition would be worse than at first because they did not fill their lives, the nation of Israel as a whole, did not fill their lives. When the Messiah came, they rejected him, did not recognize him. And ultimately it was worse. By 70 AD, their city was no more. Hebrews 10:39. but we are not those who draw back in perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. In this passage, I see the importance of filling our lives with Jesus Christ because we will all fill our hearts with something. It will either be, as John wrote in 1 John 1.16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. But it's only by filling our lives with Jesus Christ can we find true peace. So only one who can fill and fulfill our lives, the only one, is Jesus Christ. And we're going to close out just briefly looking at the family of God um, partly just to give us a little glimpse into the earthly fam family of Jesus Christ and Jesus' perception of his half-brothers and sisters, his mother. It tells us, we're going to go to Ma Mark chapter 3. You can find this in all three Gospels, but we're going to go to Mark chapter 3 to pick this up. Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. And so we begin verses 31 and 32. His brothers and his mother came standing outside. They had sent to him calling and the multitudes was sitting around him. And he said, look, your mother and your brother are outside seeking you. So we might argue that because so many people were coming to Jesus, that there was no room for his mother and brothers to enter into the room. They were standing outside. Yet, they were willing to interrupt. Jesus was in the house, wherever it was. It doesn't tell us specific location, but we have him somewhere teaching. They were in willing to interrupt. They wanted to bring him out. According to Mark 3, 20 and 21, the multitude was so great that they did not even have so much time to eat bread. But when his own people heard of us, his family heard about this, they went to lay hold of him and they said he is out of his mind. So they're thinking, especially perhaps Jesus' brothers at this point, that their elder half-brother has lost it at this point. They didn't believe in Jesus. According to John 7, 5, even his brothers did not believe in him at this time. So they show up and family and friends often misunderstand the call of God in our lives. So they show up, they call for him, but Jesus looks around in verses 33 through 35, 
And he says, who is my mother and my brothers? And he looks around the circle and those who sat with him. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whatever does the will of God is my brother and my sisters, my sister and my mother. So those were all singular, my brother, my sister and my mother. So Jesus saw the family of God to be greater than personal family relations. That's why scripture puts a high emphasis on the fellowship of believers and the fellowship that we have with one another. First John 1, 5 through 7 says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie, we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. It's that importance of the fellowship of the body of Christ. Did Jesus' family ever come to believe he is the promised Messiah? Well, we do know that Mary and um, James and Jude did. And I, I believe that they all perhaps did. But I believe that Mary and Joseph always believed because of the uniqueness of Jesus' birth. What they didn't really understand is the work of Jesus Christ. None of the Jews understood, even his disciples. They were all looking for the Messiah of the second coming. And they got the Messiah of the first coming. So Mary and Joseph no doubt always believed because of the testimony that they had experienced through angels, through the Holy Spirit, through the Magi through the uh, saving of Jesus, the shepherds that came, the saving of Jesus when he was a baby and Herod was not able to kill him. So they always believed. But his brothers, perhaps, it took a little longer for them. Jesus' brothers and sisters seem to take a bit longer. Regarding the sisters, we have no names given us, but Matthew 1356 tells us that he had sisters. Mark 6, 3 also tells us that. In Matthew 1355, it gives us the four names of Jesus' brothers, James, Joseph, or Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Of James, uh, Galatians 119, Paul calls him the brother of our Lord. So James is called by Paul, the brother of our Lord. He was very prominent in the early church, the head of the first church council in Acts 15 and the author of the epistle of James. Joseph or Joseph, we have no other information given of him in the Bible. Simon, it's believed by some that he's Simon the Zealot, but there's no real evidence of this. Some have put him with Simeon, a bishop of Jerusalem, but again, uh, there's no true evidence of this. In reality, we don't have a lot of information about him. Those who go outside of the Bible try to tell us about him. But Judas, or Jude, in the epistle of Jude, he calls himself not the brother of Jesus, but a servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James. So if you put the dominoes together, you kind of link up the chains James is the brother of Jesus. Jude is the brother of James, which makes him the brother of Jesus. But Jesus is teaching the true family of God are those who do the will of God. 
Those are they that are the true family of God. To this day, there are people saying, if not with their mouths, or surely, but with their actions, they're saying, show us a sign. Show us a sign that we might believe. And yet I would argue that there's signs all around us. And while the people of Jesus' day had looked forward, had to look forward to the sign of Jonah that Jesus used, to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we today look back to that same sign, that Jesus did die, that he did go into the grave, that he spent three days and three nights in the heart of this earth, that he resurrected from the grave, and that salvation is available to all who call upon the name of Jesus Christ. That salvation is available to this day, to those who call upon the name of Jesus in life-saving faith. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask, Lord, now as you be with us, as we close out in a song of worship, we pray, Lord, your blessing upon us. As Kevin comes forward to pray for anyone who has a prayer need, as we have prayer benches here at the front of the church for people to come to kneel and pray if they would like. We ask, Lord, that you would work. I was reminded a few weeks ago of one of the Calvary pastors in Wisconsin, how he came to faith he and his wife sitting at their kitchen table in 1993, listening to the Word of God being preached on the radio. They accepted Christ, uh, went on to go to the Bible College, now pastoring a church up in Madison, Wisconsin. Lord, we pray for our radio listeners, for those who are watching through video. Though we may not see the response, Lord, we know that you can work in our hearts. For those who open their hearts to you, this hour we pray in the name of Jesus, amen.